Hello, people of the way. Uh, we are going to continue our study through the book of Acts. And if you have your Bibles with you today, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, we left off in verse 12 last week. And if a little refresher, you know, that in verse 4 of chapter 13, we see that, uh, that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. It's a small little entourage of people. You know, they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. If you remember in verse 2, the Holy Spirit was the one who said to the uh, small fellowship of people, not a lot, a small handful, four or five guys. There was in verse 1, there's Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, and then also uh, Saul. So five guys, five guys. And it's so beautiful because it says in verse 2, it says, no, the Holy Spirit is the one who said to them, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And in verse 4, we see that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and they were in the island of Cyprus. The island of Cyprus. They sailed to Cyprus. They handled some, handled some business in Cyprus. You know, we see, we started that last week. And the opposition that they received from Elymas, who was a sorcerer, an evil sorcerer. And what's so cool is that you see offense. Offense, you know, you we kind of talked about that last week where, you know, as believers, we have a defensive posture, which is beautiful. But then at the same time, don't forget offense, you know, like you're in a boxing match, you take punch, 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 you know, you kind of, you know, some hits you absorb, some hits, the guy's good, you take a little jab, or, you know, you have your hands up, your gloves up, but then at what point it's like, okay, it's time for me to attack now. You know, it's like a basketball game. You see the defensive posture of the, you know, a, a team. Defensive posture. They do their blocks. They try to, you know, block shots as best they can. And then they get possession of the ball and it's boom. It's time for offense. You see it in sports all the time. What about the offense of the Christian? What about our offense? We have our shields up, but at what point, you know, is our sword collecting dust? And I don't say that. It's not a point of shame. It's to say, like, kind of like uh, fan the flame a little bit toward the church body. It can be like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot I had this sword. And don't forget, it's, sword, it's sharper than any two-edged sword because it's the word of God. I'm not speaking about weapons of carnal nature. I'm speaking about the weapons of the spirit, weapons of, you know, faith. And so look what happens here. In verse 13, so they handle business on Cyprus. Now look what happens in verse 13 where we left off last week. In verse 13 says, now when Paul and his party, so it's a small group of guys. It's, it's Paul, there's Barnabas, and don't forget that John Mark was with them. And some people say, well, is Luke with them? Because remember, Dr. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. So there are some people who say Luke is with them. I don't believe that he, he could be, but me personally, I kind of, I don't believe he is. Because if you notice in, in, Paul's, in, in, these, in, in the book of Acts, thus far, it's written in the third person. Dr. Luke writes in the third person, you know, saying like they, you know, they did this and they did that. They did this. Paul did this. Peter did this. Philip did that. But in chapter 20, it changes to the first person. In chapter 20, you see, we, we did this. We went here. We did this. So it's like, you know, remember the book of Acts, is, it spans about 40 years. 
It spans about 40 years. It's a, it's a book that captures a lot of church history. And it's church history like a small portion. Because, like, you know, look at the uh, 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 Matthew. Historically, it went to uh, uh, areas in um, uh, India. And then you have Thomas, who historically went to regions in North Africa. And so these are things that are not captured in the Word of God. So it's like, you know, what about the other apostles? What happened to those guys? It's like, well, you know, we have an idea, but we don't, it's not necessarily captured in church history. The Lord knows. You know, we're going to find out at the marriage supper. You know, I mean, we're going to have a meal and everything, but wow, you know, it's like we're going to find out so many beautiful things. But you see, the Word of God spreads. And we're just getting a little picture. So this entourage, you know, they meet up in chapter 20. They connect with Luke and they're like, hey, Luke, you know, look, what you, do. you know, several years ago, this happened here, this happened here. And so Dr. Luke, he chronicled everything from Acts chapter 1. That's why it's written in the third person up until chapter 20. And then in chapter 20, you start to see the we's. We did this, we did this, we said this, we, you know, and then you see like, wow, you know, they joined up together, Dr. Luke. And so look what happens here in verse 13. It says, Now, uh, uh, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they left the island. They left the island. They go north a little bit to the mainland. And so they're on the mainland now. And then look what happens here. Uh, it came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from then, returned to Jerusalem. So John Mark departs. He goes back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 14 now. It says, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, it's very important to remember there's two Antiochs. There's an Antioch that's north of Jerusalem, and then there's the Antioch that's uh, northwest of Jerusalem. Further, uh, we kind of talked about that a little bit last week. But, you know, if you look in your maps in the back of your Bibles, you know, check out the maps because you'll see on Paul's first missionary journey, you'll see the Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, and then go left, and then you'll see another Antioch there. So there's two Antiochs. And so look what happens here. It says they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. I love this so much. I love it. It's so hardcore because they go straight up to the hornet's nest. You know, it's like, wow, they went to the synagogue. No, they didn't. Oh, they did. Because it's like, whoa, I mean, keep it, remember what happened in the synagogue in, in, in Jerusalem. There was some major, major persecution against the church. I mean, let's not forget the persecution against our Lord himself. Look at what happened in the, the religious center in Jerusalem. So they're in another town, in another region, in Pisidia, or in Antioch, which is still in Pisidia. But then, you know, they go to the hornet's nest. Instead of saying, hey, let's go into the street corner, like, no, let's go to the synagogue. And it's so cool what happens here. It says in verse 15, and after the reading of the law and the prophets. So what happened, just a, a little history of what would happen in synagogue is that, you know, you would go to synagogue. I mean, if we were Jews, you know, not necessarily Jews because they were God-fearing uh, uh, Gentiles that would go too. And so in the synagogue, you know, they would open up in prayer and then they would have the reading of the scrolls. One of the uh, uh, scribes or the teachers would take out these huge scrolls and lay them on this big table. And so they'd take the scroll and lay them down and then somebody would read from the scrolls. 
usually from uh, 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 the book of uh, or, or the, the law of Moses. But sometimes, you know, they would get into uh, the prophets, the reading of the prophets. And so it says here in verse 15, and it says, uh, oh, and a little side note about synagogue, just the procession of synagogue in the process, uh, they would have a, a, a period of teaching and reading from the scrolls and then teaching and then also commentary. But it would last from about two to six hours. And the teacher would be the one who would sit down and everybody else would be standing up in the audience listening. And it was, it was uh, 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 there were Jews there, uh, uh, practicing Jews, and then also uh, uh, God-fearing Gentiles. Kind of like uh, the, the like of Cornelius. You know, there's no indication that Cornelius went to temple or went to synagogue, uh, but he was certainly God-fearing. I mean, just read the Bible, read what we read a couple chapters ago, and you see when the angel appeared to Cornelius and gave him the vision and said, hey, you know, your, your prayers and your alms have come up before the Lord. So he certainly was a God-fearing Gentile. It's so cool what happens here in chapter 13 because don't forget, we started to see little snippets of the Holy Spirit kind of moving unto the Gentiles. Moving unto the Gentiles. And so look what happens here. It says in verse 15, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And this is so cool. This part is, it just, it blows me away because it's like, wow, for such a time as this, I mean, I'm a salesman by trade, okay? And it's like, so say for example, if, you know, I'm a salesman by trade and the bulk of my uh, clientele, I shouldn't say the bulk, but, you know, kind of my target is business owners. And say, for example, I'm in a chamber meeting. You and I were in a chamber meeting. I don't like chamber meetings, me personally. That's just me. Because a lot of people say, you know, join these uh, business communities, join the chamber, join the, you know, it's for networking sakes. Well, I'm, I'm not into networking. You know, that, that's just me personally. It's not to bag on anybody. But my perspective is like, you know, if you're going to, you know, offer something, if you're going to get into some kind of business, you need to go pound the pavement. A lot of times people, they, they like to network for the sake of, you know, hey, you know, send me some of your clients, you know, and they, that's how they network. But I'm not down with that. That's just me personally. I'm not bagging on anybody, but that's just me. So one time I was in a chamber meeting. It's like, you know, oh, that, yeah, send me some of your clients. I'm like, it's a waste of my time. I'll, I sit here for a couple hours when I can be, you know, doing my work, doing my business. And so that's just my perspective. The reason why I bring this up is because imagine we're in a chamber meeting, you know, and we're just sitting there, you know, we just get a cup of coffee, sit at the table, listen to all these business people speak. And then somebody says, Hey, sir, what do you have to say? You know, it's just like, it's like opportunity is not even knocking. It's just like the door is right open, you know, from a a salesman's perspective. And, you know, I don't want to cheapen the word of God or cheapen the uh, uh, um, uh, evangelism, you know, not to cheapen it and say it's just a mere sales pitch because it's the power of God unto salvation. But you know, from my perspective, you know, I see this and it's like, wow, the Lord is just setting up things. It's such a divine appointment. You know, uh, 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 they're in Antioch. They go in a synagogue and, 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 and Paul and, and um, uh, Barnabas, they sit down, they listen to the, you know, the whoever's speaking, they listen to him. And then all of a sudden, you know, hey, what do you guys have to say? It's like, I wonder if they looked at each other with a little smile on their face. Like, is this really happening? Like, wow, praise the Lord. 
What a beautiful, beautiful. It's like, you know, the, the Lord. It, what's interesting here is the question that is posed. Not really a question, but this is a statement, kind of an open ended statement that can be put into a question. But the question is, or the statement is, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Say on. And I wonder if Paul and Barnabas look over, kind of, you know, lean in on each other. Paul's got a big old smile on his face. And Barnabas is like, okay, brother, handle business, handle your business. You know, and it's so cool what happens here because, you know, when they say, do you have any word of exhortation? You know, from the Christian perspective on a large scale, we think of exhortation as encouragement and comfort. And it, it certainly is those things. You know, to, to exhort one another. It's to encourage and comfort one another. But there's also something else. There's a little more to that. It's also to implore. It's like, what do you mean to implore? I don't get it. Well, it's to make a strong appeal, to make a strong urging, and to make a strong plea. It's a big deal. Whenever you think about exhortation, exhort, exhorting another brother, exhorting another sister, exhorting the body of Christ, it's multifaceted. There's encouragement, and then there's comfort, and then there's the imploring, you know, where there needs to be imploring. I'll give you an example. Say I'm down in the dumps. Okay, and it's just like, man, I, I'm just down in the dumps. You come alongside me and you say, hey, man, what's going on? And I say, I'm down in the dumps. Well, a form of exhortation is to, you know, encourage me and kind of help lift me up. And then say, for example, I'm, you know, drunk. You know, I'm drunk out of my mind. Number one, I'm, this is just for example, and I'm using me as an example because I like to, you know, use me as the bad guy. If that ever happened, I couldn't be a pastor anymore. I forfeit my ability to, to shepherd God's people. You know, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. So when I say I use myself as the bad guy, I got to think of another guy as a bad guy. We'll say Joe. Okay, Joe's the bad guy. And sometimes I say like, say for example, I'm drunk. Or say for example, I'm on crack. You know, if that ever happens, I can never be a pastor. I have to step down from pastoral leadership and, you know, repent seek the Lord, and it's like I'm back on milk again. I have to grow up again. You know, sometimes people say, oh, yeah, I, 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 I got caught. And so I, I can't pastor for a month, and then I'll pastor, you know, after a month. I'll pastor after two months. It's, it's because you got caught. You know, it's, it's, sometimes people say, oh, I'm sorry, I've repented, I repented. But have you really repented? You know, you're not sorry unto the Lord. You're sorry because you got caught. So I'll choose another guy. Say there's Joe Schmo, who's down in the dumps, and you say, hey, Joe, what's the matter? You say, well, Joe says, oh, I'm down in the dumps. Well, you encourage the guy. And say, for example, it's a week later, and Joe's kind of like looking weird. You say, Joe, what's the matter? You look at his arm, he's got needles sticking out of his arm. Now you can still provide exhortation, but it's to implore. It's to give a strong urging and say, hey, Joe, you're a Christian. You're going back to the vomit. 
if you continue down this path and you die in sin, you know, the Bible says, you know, it's not going to be pretty for you. It's not going to be pretty for you. You're flirting with fire. And I'm talking about hellfire. Why, why even do that? Don't forget, when you read Acts chapter 1, Judas fell by transgression. Transgression is like, you know, that when you, like, you're, you're in Christ, you're in the Lord. And there's something that Satan is dangling out there. And you know you ought not to take a bite of that. But you know what you do? You leave, you jump the fence, you jump, jump the fence of Christ. And you leave the fold and you take a bite of what Satan has to offer. I'm not trying to say like if you do that, you're going to burn in hell. Because it's like, you know, you do that and you learn from your mistake and you repent. Remember, the law is a tutor to keep us in Christ. And then we're under grace when we're abiding in Christ. But it's to say, hey, if you keep on jumping the fence, number one, you're playing games with God's grace. It's not a good thing to do. Don't do that. You know, make your salvation sure. Make your call and election sure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. People say, well, how do I do that? Well, number one, don't play games with the Lord. Don't take advantage of His grace. Number two, reckon the old man dead. Reckon the old woman dead. And put on Christ. Be alive in Christ. So don't forget that exhortation. Yes, it's to comfort, you know. Joe's feeling down. It's to, hey, Joe. What's the matter, you know? Hey, let me put my arm around you. I love you, man. What is it? What's the deal? And Joe kind of explains, well, you know, this happened, this happened. Look, man, in the grand scope of eternity, I know it stinks now, but in the grand scope of eternity, Satan's trying to get you to fall. Don't fall for it. Here, let's hang out for a little bit. Come hang out with me. We'll do something fun, you know? We'll go for a walk and just talk and laugh, get some Cokes. Go for a little stroll, you know, buy a burger somewhere and go for a little stroll. I don't know. All my good times seem to involve food. But what if Joe says, you know, you look at Joe and he's got some needles sticking out of his arms. He's cooking spoons. You know, you see him coming out of the, you know, the sex store. You're driving, getting your car washed and you see him walking out of the sex store with a, you know, a bag in his hand. And you drive over, pull over, and say, Joe, what's up, man? What you got there, Joe? Say, hey, Joe, don't be deceived. Neither lying nor fornicator will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let me see what you got there. You know what? Throw it in the trash. Get it out of here. I don't even want to see what you got. You can't tell me, you know. You're buying pillowcases. Get rid of that. A lot of times we think of exhortation as like, oh, I need to be comforted. I need to be encouraged. No, sometimes people need to be warned. So get that in your minds about exhortation, biblical exhortation. Because here in verse 15, they say, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And you know what's so cool? Paul's version of exhortation. You hear, you know, uh, you, you know, you listen to me say these things. You're like, oh, you know, I don't know about that. You know, that's going a little too far. But I've always thought that exhortation was comforting and to be an encouragement. And it is. But there's more to the story. 
we're about to see Paul's version of exhortation. And remember, it's like such a beautiful divine appointment what the Lord is setting up here. Let's look at verse 16. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, you know, notice the quote here. This is the beginning of the quote. And said, motioning with his hand said, quote, and this quote, it starts in verse 16 and it ends in verse 41. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul is speaking to Jew and Gentile alike. They're both present. The Gentiles that are present are kind of of the Cornelius type. Gentiles who are like, man, you know what? I was born into Hinduism. I was born into whatever. I was born into, you know, whatever religion, um, you know, whatever. But the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, He is Lord. He is Lord. And you know what's so cool? This, keep in mind, they're like in a Grecian center. I think we talked about that last week. I, I, my mind, I get lost. I think I mentioned it last week or the week before, but I seem to remember mentioning it. I might not have mentioned it. So I seem to remember, you know, I gave the example of the United States and New York City and in Chinatown. How you can, you know, you can be in New York City and downtown Manhattan. Say you're in, you know, uh, 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 the Upper West Side. You know, and, and you're in the Upper West Side of Ma uh, Manhattan, kind of near uh, 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 Harlem, you know, the good part of Harlem, you know, kind of, you know, uh, old school, but kind of new school, kind of get a nice little vibe in the city. And then say, for example, you get in a cab and you say, hey, take me to Chinatown. He takes you to Chinatown. You get out of the cab and it's like, whoa, you feel like you're in China, like straight up China. But keep in mind, you're in New York City. I mean, you get, you're, in, you're in Chinatown, but you get out of the cab, you see all the Chinese restaurants, Chinese stores, you know, a bunch of Asians walking around, you know, the white tourists, you know, some, you know, Latino tourists, some black people, the tourists, you know, maybe they're locals, I don't know. But you see kind of like a, a, a mixing pot, but you see a lot of Asians, you know. And then at the same time, you're like, wow, it's like you smell the foods, you smell everything, you like. It's like, you should, I feel like I'm in China. But, you know, you get in an air balloon, a hot air balloon, and it's like, no, nope, sure enough, I'm in New York City. Or you get on your, at your phone, you hit the little map, the map app, and you see your little bubble there, and then you zoom out, and like, yeah, sure enough, I'm in New York. You zoom out some more, sure enough, I'm in the United States. That's what it was like here in this Grecian area. It was Roman in the Roman Empire, encompassed of the Roman Empire, but they still held on to their cultural, they had cultural hubs. And they had a lot of gods. From a Roman perspective, Caesar was God. God on earth. From a Roman perspective. And because they held on to their Grecian cultures, or they held on to Grecian cultures, you know, they had all kinds of different gods, which we're going to see. We talked about that a little bit last week when we looked at uh, um, Aphrodite, you know, the sex god. But there's more gods and more sex gods that we're going to see. Kind of interesting, you know, the, the, it kind of uh, rings true today when you look at the culture that we're in today. Everything is so sex charged. 
That's the world we live in. And I'm not trying to downplay it and be like, well, you know, we just got to deal with it. No, we got to understand the nature of this battlefield that we're in. And remember, there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same that's in the book of Acts. Except there are some warriors, the believers in Christ. And so Paul, he stood up, motioning with his hand, said, Men men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Paul's about to give a little dissertation on the Old Testament up to this moment. Some of this stuff we've studied already. I mean, in our study through the book of Exodus. And so look what happens here. Verse 17. "The The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. The word chose here is eklagomai. That's a big word. Eklagomai. And the reason why I bring that up and say it's a big word is because, you know, a lot of people say, you know, uh, uh, you didn't choose, you know, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you, which is a biblical truth. Jesus Christ did say that. But when you read John chapter 6, Jesus Christ also says, you 12 I have chosen, but one of you is a devil. Same word, eklagomai. It's like with my wife. I chose her. I eklagomai her. But I didn't pull up to her and say, hey, get in the car. I choose you. And she gets in the car like a robot. No. I chose her. And she had to, you know, choose me too. That's eklagomai. It's two-way road here. You know, Jesus Christ says, abide in me and I in you. It's two, you and the Lord. You and Jesus Christ. Yeah, he chose you because he loves you. But do you choose him? He eklagomai you. Do you eklagomai him? Very important to understand these because we're, we see these in the Old Testament too. I mean, he calls Israel his chosen people. Because yeah, he, he chose them. He had compassion on them. But then at the same time, you get into the later chapters of the Old Testament, like Hosea, and he straight up calls them a harlot. They have played the harlot. He says they they are whores. I know that sounds harsh to say it like that. But when you look at how they turn their back on the Lord, that's what he calls them. They've played the harlot. They were unfaithful to me, he says. Read it. We're going to study it more in the Old Testament. And as we study these things, you are going to cry and weep just like I do. Because it'll break your heart. It'll tear at your heart. Such beautiful passages that we have in the Old Testament. And then you keep reading, keep reading, and you keep reading, and you're like, oh, Israel, what's happening? You know, Saul, what's happening? David, why? All these beautiful things. It's like, whoa. And that it's going to highlight the beauty of repentance and highlight the love of our Lord. You know, and then you look, when we get into the Chronicles and the Kings, you're going to see one king does evil in the sight of the Lord. One does good in the sight of the Lord. And you're going to see what happens with Israel. 
the presence of the Lord in their tabernacle, the Shekinah glory when the Lord is honored, and then what happens when the Lord is dishonored. It reminds me a lot about our walk as Christians. What happens when the glory of the Lord is inside of our temples? And then what happens when the glory of the Lord is outside of our temples? You see? It's very important to keep our minds, to keep our hearts pure before the Lord. Yeah, I know we live in a sex-charged world. I know we live in a drug-charged world. Alcohol, everywhere you look. The selfie generation, so big on how they look, they got to have a certain appearance. You know, you see somebody's, you know, social media, like, wow, you know, this guy looks like a model, but then you see him in real life, he's like, who's this guy? You know, it looks like you, you just woke up, you know, look what the cat drug in. But no, you know, they have a nice picture on social media, but you don't realize they took, you know, 800 pictures. 800 angles, and they chose the best one. It's such a trip. It's like, wow, you know, we live in such a weird culture. But what about your temple inside? Forget about the outside. You know, what's going on inside? So he says in verse 17, The God of our people, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. This is their exodus out of Egypt. We studied that. You know, we just got done with the book of Exodus. Remember, they were in bondage. They were in bondage. And the Lord rescued them. In verse 18, Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Remember, this we haven't really got there yet. We're in a beautiful passage right now in Leviticus, how things are kind of, the people being right before the Lord is starting to be put in place by the means of sacrifice, by the means of blood. Does that ring a bell? When we consider the propitiation for our sins and of our sins, how we can have peace with God by blood. You see, the things of the Old Testament, they're a mere shadow of the things to come. And when I say a mere shadow of the things to come, I'm speaking about Jesus Christ. He's the propitiation for our sins and of our sins. He's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's also the sacrifice. And so look what happens here in verse 18, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. So this two-week journey, it was a four, It became a 40-year journey. A two-week journey. Actually, it was about 11 days. There's some debate, 11 days. I give some wiggle room, so I say two weeks. A two-week journey turned into 40 years. You see, it's like, think about your own walk with the Lord. Think about your own walk with the Lord. I mean, do you ever like, not to get down on yourself, but do you ever kick yourself like, man, I wish I would have known better five years ago. Well, I wonder if, you know, a three-day journey took five years. Or do you ever kick yourself like, man, I wish I would have, I wish I would have heeded the warnings 
20 years ago. I wish I would have yielded to the word of God 15 years ago. Maybe five years ago. Maybe one year ago. Maybe one week ago. Whatever duration of time. Maybe you're five years. Maybe you're one year. Maybe you're 10 years. Really, if your heart was soft and if you yielded to the leading of the Lord and His Word, I wonder if your 10-year journey could have been two days or one day or one hour. And I don't say this to hammer you. I'm telling you by experience. How my 10-year journey, how my 15-year journey, how my 5-year journey could have been cut short had I but yielded. So, with peace in my heart, I can tell you, don't make the mistakes that I did. And we can read the Bible and I can tell you, don't make these mistakes. Don't let a 40-year, don't let an 11-day journey be 40 years. It's much better to lean on the Lord and learn from the Lord and yield to the Lord and align your will with His. Scratch that. Deny your will and take His will. You say, what is His will? Be patient, my friend. You need some time with the Lord. To understand his ways. You know, read the Bible, pray, and he'll show you. He'll he'll do a complete gut job inside of you. He'll change your frame of mind. And so look what happens here. In verse 18. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. You know, I think I've read that verse about three or four times now. So let's look at verse 19. Sometimes I read verses like over and over and over because I forget. And then like sometimes I also wonder like, I wonder if the Lord is trying to say something here. (laughs) (laughs) So let's look at verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Now, these seven nations, we haven't got there yet. We're going to hit this more when we get into the book of Joshua. And we're going to see some of these seven nations, or these seven nations, they're the uh, uh, um, uh, um, Canaanites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Perizzites. And these are all descendants of Ham. Remember the Canaanites. Canaan, son of Ham, who was the son of Noah. And Ham was the son of disobedience. You say, what do you mean disobedience? Remember, he looked on his father's nakedness. He said, that's no big deal. You know, you look at your dad's nakedness, no big deal, you know. It's like, wait a second. It's a huge deal. Are you kidding me? Be very careful when you gloss over things like, oh, it's just a little white lie. No big deal, you know. I saved some money. God's not going to care. In fact, God likes it. 
So I let my eyes, you know, look at this gander at these things. A little nudity. Who cares? No big deal. It's a very big deal. It's a very big deal. Oh, so this lady is dressed like this. No big deal. You know, you could admire, you know, admire the beauty. Look, but don't touch. I can't tell you how many men have told me that. It's okay to look, but don't touch. Men in ministry. Who have no business being in ministry. It's okay to look. It's okay to admire, but don't touch. Wait a second. Do you know what's happening inside your temple? When the Lord says, be holy for I am holy. Oh, you're such a legalist. <laughs> I fear for you to the one who tells me that. You're such a legalist. I fear for you. Because what you call legalism, I call obedience to the word of God. You can call it legalism. But be very careful with this mindset of, oh, it's just a little white lie. Look at what happened to Ham. Not just Ham, but the generations after him. Take a 15-year-old kid who has grown up. Oh, yeah, it's just a little white lie. No big deal. My parents did it. My grandparents do it. No big deal. And this 15-year-old kid grows up. You know, finds a girl, gets married, has kids, their kids grow up. What's going to happen with their kids, their generations? It's just a little white lie. Look, I even go to church. I even have my Bible. Look, I even have my prayer. I'll take my selfies with my Bible. Look how holy I am. Be very careful. When your flesh desires to gloss over sin and things of the carnal nature, Be very careful. Look what happened with Ham. He tells his brothers, Hey, Shem, Japheth, check it out. Dad's naked. He said, we're not, we're not playing like that. So they walked backwards. They carried a sheet, each of them. You know, Shem had the one end of the sheet. Japheth had the other end of the sheet. And they walked backwards. And they covered their father's nakedness. So cool. Because you see an Old Testament example of children being the covering for their parents. It's so cool. You know, it, the, the biblical Christian home, the husband, the dad, is the spiritual covering for the family, for the wife, and for the kids. It's so beautiful. And the covering for the husband is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's covering is God our Father. But then what happens when you have these, you know, defunct dads, defunct husbands, then the wife has to take that role, the weaker vessel. You know, I've had, you know, interaction with women's lib movement, you know. They, hey, I don't like how you say the weaker vessel. No, well, you know, that's nice. You know, you don't like how I say the weaker vessel? No, I don't. That's nice. But you are the weaker vessel if you're female. You hear me give the example, you know, if I say, hey, come over to my house, we're going to have nice, I'm going to make the best spaghetti you've ever had in your life. And I'm going to put this big old pot on the center of the table and you just dig in. And this big old pot, it's cast iron. You can 
I don't care what you do with it, you know, just bang at it, do whatever. You can put dings, dings, dents. I do it myself. It's cast iron. But if my wife were to say, hey, come over and make, you know, Jay's going to make his world famous spaghetti. And then it's like, but, you know, she's insistent. But I'm going to serve it in my, my plates, my, my, my bowl. You know, my whatever, you know, her stuff, her fancy stuff. It's very delicate. I can't say have at it, you know, attack it like animals. No, you got to be very delicate. Because it can still hold spaghetti. It's a still a vessel for spaghetti. But if you manhandle it too much, it's going to break. It's going to shatter. And we don't want that to happen. You know why? Because this pot is a weaker vessel than my cast iron. So you have these defunct dads, defunct husbands, who are on either on milk or they've denied the things of the Lord. Now the wife is the covering for her husband and her kids. The wife is the spiritual covering. But you have to be very careful because as the weaker vessel, they can shatter. Oh, I'm women's lib. That doesn't sound right. You know, oh, my professor tells me this. I don't care. I could care less what your professor says. I could care less. Look at the world around you. Look inside. Look Look at all the basket cases inside the church. And I say that with all due respect to them and with all due respect to the Lord. But look at all the basket case women in the church. I, 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 you know, I... I I kind of, me personally, I kind of like how this world is uh, crass because there are certain elements of my nature which are rough around the edges. So I think, you know, for this day and age, I'm able to get away with saying things like this. Maybe if we were in 1950, I wouldn't say, look at all the basket case Christian women in the church. But today, maybe maybe I can say that. I don't say it. To be mean. But look. Their witness testifies. Look at all the husbands who have been defunct. Either they're on milk. Or they denied the things of the Lord. And now the wife has to be the heavy. Holding on to her husband with one hand. Holding on to her kids with the other hand. But she as the weaker vessel will start to chip, chip away. You see? That's what I mean when I say basket case wives, basket case women. Not a knock on women. But you see women being tossed to and fro by various kinds. I mean, men too. But then what about when you have a defunct dad, defunct husband, and then a defunct wife, and a defunct mom, and you're a child. You're like, man, I love the Lord. I'm growing in the Lord. You know, my mom's on milk. My dad, you know, he's on crack. Well, you know what, my little friend? You're the heavy in your home. You're the covering of your family. Just like Shem and Japheth, covering for their dad. 
don't be like Ham. Look what started with Ham. He was like, oh, no big deal. Just a little nakedness. No big deal. Be very careful with the internet. You know, I'm a news junkie. You know, you have settings on your computer. You go to websites, go in the reader mode. Or you click a button to read a news article and it's just like, boom, you got to immediately click on the reader only. Because all these images pop up. You know, you have to protect your mind. You can't be stupid. Especially for men. You know, women have their own things to deal with. But I tell you from a man's perspective. You have to protect your mind. The things you watch on TV. Ah, uh, just a little nerdy, just a little this, just a little that. I was talking to a kid one time. He was telling me, oh, this movie's so funny. You've got to see it. What's it called? And he says, oh, it's this movie. I was like, whoa, I heard about that movie. You watched that? What in the world? How could you watch that? And he said, I said, did you, did you, how did you, did you watch, like sneak a DVD? He says, no, I watched it with my dad. And I started to weep. And in another room, you could hear his dad leading worship to the church. Oh, that sounds judgmental. Well, you know, number one, I've removed some major planks in my own eye. I'm able to see clearly. Number two, am I really wrong? Am I really being a legalist? Look at what's passed on to the next generation. Wickedness or righteousness? The choice is yours. What do you want to pass on to the next generation? I can't... I can pray. I can hope. I can teach. I can implore. I can exhort. But ultimately, it's you that has to make the choice. Some cuss words here, cuss words there, some nudity, some little, you know, tight clothes and, you know, revealing clothes. No big deal. It's a good movie. Think about what's passing on to the next generation. Of wickedness or of righteousness, you choose. I'll encourage. I'll encourage. I'll comfort. I'll implore. I'll make strong appeals. I'll make strong urgings. I'll make strong pleas. I'll pray. I'll hope. You make the choice. It's so cool how the Lord teaches us these things. You see, like, wow, that's hardcore. Are you serious? That's, that's a little too legalist for me. Well, okay, if you think it's too legalist, I would urge, you know, cold turkey. But if you don't want to do cold turkey, do baby steps. You know, that's my urging is cold turkey. But if you need some time, baby steps, you know, start throwing things out. Start hitting the delete button. When you're on the internet, you know, start getting into reader-only mode. 
like me, like social media, like all these people, it's like, like if you go to like, I don't know how you do it. Liz shows me, but like you see this thing and there's like all these lists of friends. And I used to have this huge, I still have a big list of friends. But anytime I see like, I don't like nudity. You know, you start to see things that are too revealing. I just sit, you know, like unfollow, 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 unfollow. So now <laughs> it just, I can be off social media for three months and get on it. And in about two minutes, I'm caught up. You say, man, that's legalists. I want to keep in contact with my friends and family. That's legalists. Well, I want to keep in contact with people too. But you know what? I have a heart to protect. I have a mind to protect. And I have people that I need to care for spiritually. I don't want to be a stupid guy. I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be a doofus in the last days. It requires discipline. People don't like that word these days. Discipline. And I love Paul. He's giving this dissertation to a room, a synagogue. A room full of Jews, a room full of Gentiles that are God-fearing. And he's speaking these things. He doesn't have a scroll before him. He doesn't have to refer to these historical accounts. Remember, he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee's brought up under the teaching of Gamaliel. Very highly respected teacher. Well-known teacher. And here's his student. Who is now a believer in Jesus Christ. Son of the Most High God. And he's speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so it says here in verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges. Uh, he, he, gave them for, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. This is interesting because, you know, we're going to look in uh, uh, when we get to the book of Joshua. But from the book of Joshua till we get to the uh, first Samuel, it's about 450 years. That's what it says right here in verse 20. It's so cool how the Old, Old Testament interprets the New. New interprets the Old. That's what's so cool about the steady diet of the Word of God. You start to learn these things. You start to learn time frames. You start to see the, the, the handiwork of the Lord in the course of, uh, in some cases, instantaneously. In some cases, over the course of 20 years, 40 years, 400 years, 450 years. 2,000 years. Verse 21. And afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Interesting timeline. 40 years. Does that ring a bell? 40 years? Sad. This is one of the saddest, saddest, saddest parts of the Bible. For me, there's a whole bunch of sad parts. But for me, there are certain ones that are very, very memorable. Turn with me really quick to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8.
I forgot to put a little tab in my page, so it's taking me some time. Here it is. First Samuel chapter 8. Look at verse 3. This is an account of Samuel. I'm so in love with Samuel. I love this guy so much. Man, there's so many people here in the Word that's just like, wow, I love this guy so much. I love this lady so much. It's like their faith. They're like, you see these accounts. It's like, wow, I want to have faith like that. I want to be a, a witness like this. I want to, men, women alike. It's like, wow, this is like my heroes in the Bible. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Look at here in verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. So what's happening here? Samuel is an old man. He's an old man. And so look at verse 3. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. You think like, oh, this is so, this breaks my heart for Samuel and his boys. It's like, wow, like, man, his sons, I mean, they... they what opportunity they had to grow up under Samuel and learn from him. But, you know, what a hardcore message this is for all of us that we all have a personal walk with Jesus Christ. A personal walk with Jesus Christ. If you have a defunct spouse, it's your personal walk. If you have defunct kids, it's your personal walk. If you have defunct parents, it's your personal walk. I don't want to gloss over that. Like it's like, oh, you know, if you got, you know, some terrible kids, you know, no big deal. I don't want to gloss over it. It's, if it seems that way, forgive me. But that doesn't change the fact that it's your personal walk with Jesus Christ. That's not to say that your heart will hurt. Because your heart will hurt. The closer you get to the Lord, the closer your heart is pressed against His heart, enveloped by His heart. There's certain pains associated with that. And a lot of times the pains are for other people who you desire. Hey, feed on the Word, it's so beautiful. And they don't. They make fun of you. They make their choice. They call you names. It's rejoice. Look, look at what's happening. Look at we're gonna see it here. Look at Samuel. Look at Elijah. Look at John the Baptist, who was in the spirit of Elijah. And there's going to be another future coming spirit of Elijah, which if it's not already here, I could say, you know, the spirit of Elijah is already here. And I could make a compelling argument for that, that we are in the days of Elijah. But where are the Elijahs? You're going to feel alone, but just like the Lord told Elijah, Elijah, you're not alone. There's 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. You're one of many. But the Lord has this many scattered all around the place. Where are the Elijahs? If you're like an Elijah, rejoice. 
rejoice. It's not to say there's not going to be pain associated with that. But even in that, even in your pain, even in your hurt, you can still rejoice. You know why? Because such is the heart of God, who is long-suffering in the Old Testament and long-suffering in the New Testament and long-suffering even today, not willing that any should perish. But he doesn't make robots. So you look at Samuel's sons. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. So they ganged up on him. All the elders of Israel in cahoots with one another and they come against Samuel. And look what they say in verse 5. And they said to, and said to him, Look, you're old. You are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Do not walk in your ways. Now, Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So Israel, at this time, the elders, they had a Joneses complex. You know, you hear that, keeping up with the Joneses. Your neighbor paints his house, you want to paint your house. You know, your neighbor gets a new car, you want to get a new car. You know, your neighbor gets, you know, puts fresh sod in his, you know, gets new grass, all these things. You want to get new grass. A neighbor does this, you want to do this. Keeping up with the Joneses. Don't play that game. Forget about the Joneses. You walk with Jesus Christ. Comparison is the thief of joy. Never forget that. Comparison is the thief of joy. Never compare your life, your walk with anybody else. Because comparison is the thief of joy. Because you start, oh, why doesn't, you know... My house like isn't like that. My cars aren't like that. My job isn't like this. My whatever my retirement plan isn't like this guy's retirement plan. You know my kids aren't like this kids. You know my it's like who cares about all that? Forget about the Joneses. The Joneses complex is satanic because you take your eyes off of Jesus Christ. That's what happened here with the elders of Israel. You know, your son's there. Your son's there. We, we can't follow your sons. So, no, we want you to anoint for us a king. In verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. I love That's why I'm in love with this guy so much. I'm so in love with Samuel. Because it's like, man, think of he was hard-pressed. You know, his, his sons are one way. The elders are coming against him. He's hard-pressed. And he isn't like... He doesn't run. You know, he's not afraid. He's not afraid. You know, he's he's not, maybe just not sure. Like, man, what do I do? What, like, but what does he do? He's like, okay, guys, hold on. Just give me some time. He goes in his little private area and he falls on his face before the Lord. I need time with my Lord. I need to spend time with God. I need to spend time with the lover of my soul. Jesus Christ. You see what's so beautiful? It's like, wow, this is so cool. No strategy involved. Not like, you know, nothing to sit down, pen it on paper, whiteboard. Okay, so if this goes here, we move this here, da da da. You know, none of, none of that. That's be careful. That's manipulation. No, when you're hard pressed like that, fall on your face before the Lord. And seek his face and pray. 
Lord, what would you have me do? Thank him. Make your prayers and supplications known to him. And pray to him. Lord, what would you have me do? Look at verse 7. Remember, in verse 6, he was displeased. Samuel was displeased. Like, you guys don't know what you're asking. In verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, I love this. He seeks the Lord and the Lord, you see, I love these parts in the Bible where it says, you know, he prayed, she prayed. And then like, you see the period. And then next verse, you see the quotes and it's the Lord. Or, and the Lord said, comma, quote. It's like, what is so cool. Intimacy. And the Lord said to Samuel, comma, quote. You see how beautiful this is? How beautiful intimacy with the Lord is? You don't have to pray and it's like, okay, I'll pray and see what happens. I'll pray and nothing's going to happen. No, that's what's so cool. When your heart is, you rip your heart out of your chest and you place it right in the pages of this book. Metaphysically speaking. But that's what you do. And the Lord will speak. And the Lord said to Samuel, comma, quote, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to do, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. You know what the Lord is saying here? Don't fight them, Samuel. Don't fight them. He's telling them, I can rule over them. I desire to rule over them. I want to be their king. I want to be their ruler. I want to reign over them. But they don't want me, Samuel. So don't fight them. I wonder if that hits home for any listener. Because it hits home for me. You know, how many times do you exhort a person? Yes, in comfort. Yes, in encouragement. Also in pleading and urging. In warning. And you tell them, hey, get off the crack. Hey, put down the pornography. Hey, put down your sex. Put down your drugs. Put down your alcohol. Put it down. And they make fun of you. I wonder if the Lord would ever tell you, hey, don't fight them anymore. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. You know, something I have to say, you know, when we talk about offense, and we talk about defensive posture, offensive posture, we talk about a warrior mindset, a warrior mentality, Someone might tell you, you have to get thicker skin. You have to grow some thicker skin. You know what I say? God doesn't make any mistakes. You might be the most thin-skinned person on the face of the planet. I say rejoice. God doesn't make mistakes. Some of the most thin-skinned people I know are the most bravest, toughest people I know. It's okay to be thin-skinned. You know why? Because you have armor. 
You have a breastplate. You have a shield. You have a sword. And you have a helmet. And I wonder if we take the helmet, say we're doing like an inspection. And I'm in my, you know, extra large size (laughs) armor. (laughs) And I'm standing in front of you and I lift up your, your helmet and I see tears streaming down your cheeks. It's perfectly okay. I can lift up my helmet and there'll be tears down my cheeks as well. We still keep the armor on. It's perfectly okay. You have thin skin. You have certain sensitivities. Praise be unto the Lord. He doesn't make mistakes. People tell you, oh yeah, grow some thin skin. Get thicker skin. You're too thin skinned. That's the language of fools who know nothing about godly things. Nothing. God doesn't make mistakes. But it's going to be a brutal, brutal fight. The church in the last days. Brutal, brutal fight for souls. People that are subject to the second death. That we have to rescue as through fire. As Brother Jude says. And we're going to have our armor. We're going to have our swords. We're going to have dents on our shields. Dents on our armor. Dents on our helmets. Sharp swords like nobody's business. But that doesn't mean that tears can't stream down your face. Because they can. They do. And they will. Such is the heart of God. Such is the heart of God. Remember, He is long-suffering. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're long-suffering as well, rejoice. The Lord straight up tells Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. That I should not reign over them. Look at verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Let me tell you something about intimacy with the Lord. It is the most lonely, lonely, lonely thing you will ever do, having intimacy with God. It is the most painful, painful, painful thing you will ever do. It is also, if we flip the coin over, incredibly beautiful. There's no words to describe the beauty of it. No words to describe the wonderment of it. Remember when the Lord would tell certain prophets... You know, to consume something and it was like honey on their lips. And then when it gets to their stomach, it's bitter. That's what's so cool about intimacy with the Lord. Because you consume the Word. You consume Him. You consume His flesh. Just like the Lord says, you know, you know, eat of this flesh, eat of my flesh. And the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? Are we cannibals now? 
but they were blind. Consuming the flesh, the word of God, every jot, every tittle, and it will be so sweet in your mouth, sweet on your tongue. You swallow so sweet, and it'll sit in your belly, and it'll turn bitter. You know why? Because now you're a messenger. And there's a certain amount of bitterness when you share truth. You say, what do you mean? I don't get it. What do you mean bitterness and sharing truth? Truth hurts. Truth is a very, very painful thing. Because take your preconceived notions. Whatever notion you have. And then see what the Bible has to say about that. That's what I mean when I say truth hurts. I've been walking with the Lord for 20 years and truth hurts. Truth still hurts. And you know what I say? Praise be to the Lord. Because I have learned the error of my ways. I have learned to trust in the Lord more. There are times when I read the Bible and it's like a knife in my heart. But you know what? I love it. Because I realize it's the Lord that's dealing with my flesh. The Lord that's dealing with my carnal nature. His Holy Spirit is chipping away at my carnal nature. And I love it. I welcome it. But it took five, ten, it took years to learn those things. It could have been learned in two days. It could have been learned in an hour. But it took years. It's the chastening of the wilderness. The learning that happens. And so look what happens here in verse in verse 9. He says, Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So the Lord is telling uh, 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 Samuel, don't fight them. Don't fight them. You're an old man. You've been doing that your whole life. You know, don't, you know, don't fight them. But you know what? Give them a warning. Give them a warning. Even, even, you know, people you love, you know, it's an act of love to give truth. Even when in return, what you get, even when it rips at your heart. And the Lord says, you know what? Don't fight them. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Heed their voice. But you know what? Give them a warning. And then you read verses 10, 11, 12. It's like, whoa, this is hardcore. What the people are choosing over God. Remember? Eklagomai. I chose you. You didn't choose me. While we were sinners, God sent his son to die for us. To die for you. Because he loves you. He chose you. But the question is, do we choose him? Do you choose him? I asked my wife to marry me. I didn't open the door, you know, kick the passenger door open, say, hey, get in the car. 
I chose you, get in the car. Is that really a love relationship? No, you know, we had uh, uh, moments of closeness. I fell in love with her, she fell in love with me. I chose her, she chose me. Look at verse 18. It says, and you will cry out. And so Samuel is telling him, look, this is what this is what you're rejecting. This is what you're going to get out of the king that you desire. Instead of the Lord, this is what you're going to get. Verse 18, and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Chosen for yourselves. I'll say it a third time. Chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. All these times where Samuel, remember he's an old man here. All these times when the people could have heeded Samuel. The elders, you know, they ganged up on him. They could have aligned to Sam, with Samuel. But no. Their opportunity to heed Samuel was, you know, a year ago, two years ago, you know, even right here at this very moment. They could have... They could have heard Samuel say, and the Lord will not hear you that day, end quote. They could have fallen to their faith. Lord, Samuel, I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. What if there was a group of 10 guys and one of them just said, Samuel, I'm not with these guys. I'm with you, you know. I, I don't, you know, these guys, I, I was a fool. And you know what, Samuel? I love you. I'm sorry. I didn't, I, I didn't mean this. And when I'm done telling you I'm sorry, I'm going to go repent to the Lord. I need to be right with God. But no. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But we will have a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. Remember, their Jones is complex. We want to be like these people. They have a king. We have no king. We want to be like them. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You know what's so sad? People today, they lean on their gods. They lean on their Buddhas. They lean on the Virgin Mary. They lean on their pornography. They lean on their crack pipe. They lean on their alcohol. They place their hope, their trust, their love in other things. In other people. But it's not God. And what happens when the day of trouble comes? What happens when the storm comes? When they have no covering of the Lord? They make fun of you. Oh, you're such a legalist. You're so stupid. You don't want to get drunk with me. You don't want to go to the strip clubs with me. You don't want to get on the crack pipe anymore with me. You don't want to cook spoons anymore with me. You don't want to do the sexual stuff anymore with me. You don't want to drink alcohol and get higher than a kite tonight. You're so legalist. You're so stupid. You're such a fool. But what happens when the storm comes? Just like the days of Noah. The Lord teaches us the last days are going to be like the days of Noah. Picture Noah. There's no rain in the summertime. No rain whatsoever. The water is way, way, way far away. I mean, if you're going to build a boat... At least build it, you know, the whole of it near the water. So when it can float, you can like, you know, get the little ramp and push it in the water. 
but no, way far away from the ocean. Noah, by the command of the Lord, starts constructing an ark in obedience. He was a preacher of righteousness, as Peter reveals to us. Well, the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter, and in turn, Peter revealed to us. A preacher of righteousness, and all the people walking by, Noah, what are you doing? Why are you building a boat? The ocean's like 50 miles east, or, you know, west, you know? Wait, you're building a boat right here? What are you, you're so crazy? What's this you tell me about God? No, 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 come with me, hang out with me, I'm going to the bar. We're going to get drunk tonight. Come on. Come with the fellas. Come, come hang out with us. We're going to have a good old time and just get ripped. And what does Noah say? I'm sorry. No. And then maybe the second time. Come on. Come with us. The third time. Come on. Come with us. The fourth time. Noah, this is getting ridiculous. You're so stupid. What are you doing? doing i see your boat yeah it's getting bigger but this is so stupid no okay no this is ridiculous now no i hate you no you're a fool no you're so dumb i'm gonna throw this rock at you now you're such a legalist you want to believe in these fairy tales why do you believe in this god i can't see him it's summertime look it's awesome look at my tan i got a nice suntan But then what happens when the rains come? The rains come. And the fools, they see the puddles are getting deeper and deeper, wider and wider. And they're like, okay, you know, I'm going to go to my house now. This is getting crazy. Then the puddles start coming into, you know, the water start coming into the, into the house. Okay, I'm getting concerned now. And all of a sudden, the water is up to the ceiling. They got to swim out the door, stand on top of the roof. Okay, I'm scared now. I'm scared now. Let me swim to Noah. They see the big old boat there. They start pounding on the door. Noah, let me in, let me in. Pounding on it. Noah, I'm sorry I made fun of you. I'm sorry I threw the rocks at you. But it was too late. The door had been closed from the outside and the Lord shut them in. There was safety in the ark. That's the days of Noah. Jesus Christ tells us the last days are going to be like that. People will make fun of you. People will call you names, call you a legalist, call you whatever. And it will hurt. Rocks will hit hit you. Sticks will hit you. Words will go in your ear hole and hurt you. But rejoice because you're counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. You see, and still rescue as through the fire, as Brother Jude tells us. Don't cast your pearls before swine. You throw little nuggets at them. Not the pearls. The pearls are for a special people. You throw little nuggets. 
And all of a sudden, they catch the nugget. They like the nugget. They fall in love with the nugget. Then you tell them about Jesus Christ. They come to Jesus Christ. They're in the fold of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ chose them, and now they choose Him. Jesus Christ doesn't say, hey, get in the car. You tell them about God's love for them. You tell them about Jesus Christ. And they say, okay, I also choose Jesus. I repent. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Then you tell them, I have some pearls for you. You reach into your pocket. Look, I've been holding this for you. And they'll look at it like, whoa, this is so beautiful. Whoa, this is so gorgeous. This is for me? Yes, it's for you. And I have more. I have more. Come on, walk with me. You see? You don't take these beautiful pearls and cast them before swine. The Lord tells us don't do that. But you can take little nuggets, kind of toss them. And they might reject it. They might say, oh, this is so stupid. But you know what? It's, it's a little nugget. Not that it's not to cheapen the word of God. But it's a little seed that they've rejected. And maybe, maybe it'll find soil another day. Or maybe it fell off the path and maybe it'll get picked up in somebody else's heart. You see? It's so sad to see. It's like, hey, we're supposed to be in Acts. Why are we here in Samuel? Well, as we develop this warrior mindset in preparation for the last days, remember that we have this thick, thick armor, spiritual armor given to us by the Lord Himself from His Word. And by His Holy Spirit. A sharp sword. And, and, and a shield. It's okay to be thin-skinned. It's okay to be sensitive. It's the ways of the circumcision is what it is. Never ever forget that. And we're going to see that in the life of Paul too. Let's go back to Acts now. You see... The boldness of Paul in the book of Acts. He's so like hardcore and I love it so much. But then you know what's interesting? We're going to get into Romans, the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and you see a little different Paul. Not that he's different per se. But in the book of Acts, we see external Paul. Remember, it's Dr. Luke that's writing it. We see external Paul. But when you read Paul's epistles, his letters, it's like, whoa, this is... I know Paul is bold. I know Paul is hardcore. But wow, he is weeping for the body. You see, it's, it's part and par- parcel with intimacy with the Lord. 
That's what I mean when I say it's lonely, it's painful, but it's so incredibly beautiful. Such immense bliss. The presence of the Lord, oneness with Him, the intimacy with Him. But it's not without pain. It's not without pain at all. So that was a little side study in Samuel to paint a picture of the warrior's heart. The warrior's heart. Let's go back to Acts 13 now. In Acts 13, verse 20. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So we had a little side study in Samuel. It says, and afterward they gave, and afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. That's where we had our little side study in in First Samuel chapter eight, in verse twenty-two. And when he had removed him, notice the capital H here. So God removed Saul. He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, "I have found David." the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. That is what is so incredibly beautiful about repentance. Because to you and me, we read the passages about David and it's like, oh, David, what are you doing? And then you look at the Lord, Lord, how could you use this guy? Look at what he has done. Look at the work of his hands. Look at the steps of his feet. Look at what he orchestrated in order to get his will. That's what's so beautiful about repentance. Repentance. And the sea of forgetfulness. You could have a whole host of sin. And yet when you repent before the Lord. He takes that sin. And he throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. It is forgotten. Like it never even happened. Now. That's between the person who repents and the Lord. That's not to say, you know, the person who repents has to reap now what they have sown to those around them, from those around them. You know, sin is forgotten when it's when when you repent before the Lord, your sin is forgotten. It's in a sea of forgetfulness. You could go back to the Lord and say, oh, Lord, about this sin. He's like, what sin? I don't know what you're talking about. It's forgotten. It's like, whoa. Is it really that easy? Yes, it's really that easy. It's called grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's really that easy. We don't deserve it. It's God's favor. We don't deserve it at all. It's God's grace. It's his mercy. It's his love for you. That's how much he loves you. To take your sin and place it on his only begotten son. depending on what your sin was and how it impacted others, it's very difficult for humans to take sin and throw it in the sea of forgetfulness. Don't expect that from humans. You can only expect that from the Lord. Don't expect it from humans. Because we're, we're, we're wrapped in these earth suits. So sometimes we read. It's like, 
You read verse 22. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own will, who will do all, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And you read that knowing that the, the handiwork of David in his flesh. And it's like, Lord, how could you use such a guy? How could you use such a guy? Look at what he's done. Well, look at what you have done. Look at what I have done. Look at the work of my hands. Look at the work of the steps of my feet. In my carnal nature, in my past carnal nature. What about the work of your hands and the steps of your feet in your past carnal nature? I don't say that to say, hey, shame on you. How could you say such a thing against David? It's just the opposite. It's to say, hey, your sin that you repented of, it's forgotten. It's in the sea of forgetfulness. Look at what the Lord did with David. Look at what the Lord can do with you. You say, oh, rubbish. How could the, how could the Lord do that with me? Do you know what I've done? I know what you've done. You've told me what you've done. You can ask the Lord, Lord, do you know what I've done? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's in the sea of forgetfulness. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, Lord, is my slate really clean? Yes. Covered by the blood of the Lamb. Awaken to these truths and be alive in Christ. Be encouraged in Christ. And you understand these things and it's like, wow. Look at Paul. Persecutor of the church. Having Christians killed in prison. He wanted to take them in chains. We studied this. We touched on these passages. Taking away people in their chains. Bound in chains. And look at what the Lord is doing with them. And we're not, you know, all these people the Lord can take just any heart that believes. Any heart that receives Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. And look at what the Lord can do with you in light of what the Lord has done with all these people from Genesis to Revelation. And so look at verse 23. From this man's seed, David, we're speaking about, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Remember, he's in a synagogue. I mean, granted, it's not in Jerusalem. He's in Antioch, the northwest Antioch. But surely these people have heard about this uprising in Jerusalem, this Jesus fellow who was crucified. And here... Paul is dropping a name in verse 23. According to the promise God raised up for Israel, a Savior, Jesus. I wonder if there were some people in the room, some Jews, maybe even some Gentiles who were like, Oh, we heard about this guy. We heard about that Jesus. I wonder if their ears perked up like, okay, tell us more. You want to hear more. I love Paul. That's bold. Especially knowing the cost of saying Jesus, the name Jesus in a synagogue. In verse 24, 
after John had first preached, this is John the Baptist now. You know, don't forget that John, he's the son of a priest, son of a high priest, Zechariah. His mom was of the Levitical line. So he was like uh, from religious aristocracy, John the Baptist. The life he could have had just by being born into that. He denied to fulfill his calling. You see, it's like, wow, you know, you read these things, you study these things. It's like, I'm so in love with John the Baptist. It's like, whoa. That's what's so cool about this great cloud of witnesses. Not just from a motivational side. I mean, it sounds cheesy to say as motivation. It's not really motivation. It's to say, look, this is, this is our lineage. This is the legacy of God. This is the legacy of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. You know, when people make fun of you, when people call you a legalist, when people call you stupid, when people make, oh, you don't want to do crack with me anymore. You're so dumb. You don't want to go to the strip club with me anymore. You dummy. Rejoice. Look at what they said about John the Baptist. They cut off his head. And through it all, he didn't deny Jesus Christ. And so look what happens here in verse 24. After John had first preached before his, before his coming, capital H, before his coming, the coming of Jesus Christ, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, course here translates as it's dromos in the Greek, dromos. It's a race, run a race. And as John was finishing his Dromos, which is a race, he said, Who do you think I am? Question mark. I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. I'm so in love with John the Baptist. And Paul is giving the account of John the Baptist to the synagogue in Antioch. He says to them, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, or the stock of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Remember, there's Gentiles there. To you, the word of the salvation has been sent to this synagogue in Antioch. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning them. Remember, he's, he's smack-talking. Paul is straight up smack-talking in the synagogue. He's saying, yeah, I'm in the synagogue in Antioch, but the religious leaders here, let's compare them to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They did not know him nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They didn't know they were blind, they were deaf, they didn't know. And in so doing, it says, and have fulfilled them in condemning him. Scriptures were fulfilled. 
Paul is Paul and Barnabas. A bold teacher and a bold encourager. And Paul is straight up smack talking in the hornet's nest. See what I love this guy. <laughs> in verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, cause like the legal term, you know, you have no action. You know, your, your neighbor calls you a dum-dum. Hey, dum-dum. And you're like, oh, I'm offended. I'm going to go seek legal counsel. You talk to your lawyer. Your lawyer says, okay. You know, talks to you for about 10 minutes. But what's the problem? My neighbor called me a dum-dum. I want to sue him. You got no case. You got no case. Go fly a kite. I'll send you my bill. There's no reason. What's your grounds for a legal case? My neighbor, he hurt my feelings. My little feelers. I'm a snowflake. You know, he called me a dum-dum. He hurt my feelings, so I want to sue him for, you know, $500,000. You got no case, go fly a kite. Ten minutes, I'll send you my $200 bill in the mail. You see? That's how lawyers are. But there's no case. In verse 28, And though they found no cause for death, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. There's the conspiracy now. To kill. We studied this in the book of Matthew or the last chapters of the book of Matthew. The conspiracy to kill. Remember, they conspired together and they wanted to kill him. In verse 29, now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Remember, keep in mind who Paul is speaking to, both Jew and Gentile in the synagogue. And they're hearing Paul speak these things concerning Jesus and the rulers in Jerusalem. He's presenting them with a choice in a quasi kind of way. Hey guys, don't make the mistake that the religious leaders did in Jerusalem. In verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. This verse alone, verse, but this, not just the verse, but the statement, but God raised him from the dead. Resurrection, it's already a touchy subject in synagogue because you have some people who believe in the resurrection and some people who deny the resurrection. It's already a touchy subject. But Paul, who cares about touchies? Everything's a touchy subject with, salt, with, with Paul. That's what I love so much about his boldness. You ever listen to bold teachers? And it's like, they'll, they'll say something and your eyes are like, whoa, did he really just say that? Whoa, I can't believe it. But then like you put it in perspective and it's like, oh, I get it now. I'm glad it's put like that because now I can understand it. See, that's what I love about the crassness and abrasive nature of this current culture that we're in. Because it's like, wait a second, we can engage. For me, it's it's easier to engage culture because I do kind of have some rough spots when it comes to language no not cussing or anything not mean or anything but just to put things in proper perspective and so look at verse 31 he was seen for many days by those who came up with them from Galilee to Jerusalem who are witnesses to the people and we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. Remember, when he says the, the fathers, like if we, were, if we were Jews at this time, when, they, when he says, the, like if we were in this synagogue as Jews or as, as Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles, if we were in there 
and we hear him say as the fathers, we would think like all the people in the Old Testament, like Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, all these people, David, you know, these would be the fathers. So when he says that promise which was made to the fathers, that's like straight up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kind of stuff. And so he says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children. He's, he's giving them the good news is what Paul is doing. In that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. That's decay, it translates as decay. So you die, you know, and you know, you die, you get buried, and you know, you're gonna, your skin's gonna rot, your bones are gonna rot, and you're gonna return to the dust. That's decay. But he says that's this corruption. It translates as decay. He has spoken thus. You know what's so cool about this process of decay? It already starts in this life. You know, when you're 40, you're going to start feeling, you know, you busted your ankle when you're 18. You know, you hurt your back when you were 19. And, you know, your shoulders are out of whack. You know, you had an injury at a young age. When you're 40, you're going to feel these things, feel these injuries. When you're 50, you're going to be like, man, my process of decay has already started. And when you're 60, you know, it's like, it's on your way to dying, you know. I mean, we're on our way to dying in Christ because we carry our cross. But in the physical sense, in the very literal sense, you're, you know, you kind of peak at the right age 30. After age 30, it's all downhill from there. You see all these people that say, oh, yeah, uh, 70 is the new 40, you know, Wishful thinking. It's because they get all the Botox or whatever. Wishful thinking. So he says, in verse, he says, he has spoken thus in verse 34. I will give you the, the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You see, so he's using scripture to verify the resurrection. You know, that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That deals with uh, decay. That deals with the you know resurrection that people had issue with in the synagogue. In verse 36, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. So David died. He, you know, there's the tomb of David. You go to the tomb of Jesus, what do you see? Nothing. It's empty. Why? Because he rose again. Resurrection. In verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that, the, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Notice the capital M there. Through this man, speaking about Jesus Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him. Everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by, by the law of Moses. See, he's already smack talking some more. He's giving the good news, but he's saying, hey, you guys want to believe in Moses? You guys want to believe in the law of Moses? There's no justification in that. It cannot save you. Salvation, justification comes through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, also the remission of sins. He's giving them the good news with a little smack talking there too. Now he gives a little warning as well. 
Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken of in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. This is hard. He gives the word. He gives the good news. You know, puts in a little smack talk in there saying, you know, the law of Moses can't save you. There's no justification in that. Remember, he's in a synagogue in the hornet's nest. And he's saying, you know, you guys want to believe in Moses? You can't be justified by that. Then he throws in some other scripture, a little warning to them. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, exclamation point. This is hardcore stuff. Remember, we haven't ended the quotes here. The quotes are about to end. He's speaking this to the synagogue, Jew and Gentile, God-fearing Gentiles. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Now, this is the end quote right here. Though one were to declare it to you, end quote. Remember verse 14 when the, the, they asked him, Do you have an exhortation for us? What have you to say to us? This exhortation. Let me say something about exhortation. It's very, very nice when it's comforting and encouraging. But what about when an exhortation is an appeal, is an urging, and it's made in the presentation of a hard reality based in truth? You say, what do you mean by saying that? Well, say you have Joe. I'll say Joe now. You have a fellow by the name of Joe. And he loves the Lord and he comes to church, you know, and it's like, wow, we have such great fellowship with Joe. And so we haven't heard from Joe in a while. It's like, man, I'm going to give Joe a phone call. You call him. No answer. What's up? So you pay him a visit. Hey, Joe, you're knocking on his door. He opens his door and he just looks like a meth head. You're like, Joe, what's the matter? Are you back on the meth? And then you like walk in this door, the, you're right at the door frame and it like punches you in the face, this big old smell of, you know, toxins. And you're like, whoa, you got to like walk five, you know, stay away. It's poisonous. And he's just all methed out. He's just got all the scabs. His face looks all weird. His body's all, you know, just weird looking. You know how the meths, meth people are. It's not to say like, you know, don't have compassion on these people. It's to say like, man. Put that stuff down. Get rid of that stuff. Hey, Joe, you know, are you going to play games with the Lord? You're a Christian, I remember. You repented and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to get rid of this lifestyle. Joe, if you're going to continue in this lifestyle, do you know what you're doing? The Bible says you can't re-crucify Jesus Christ. Don't play games with him, Joe. Someone might look at you and say, hey, that's not exhortation. You're not comforting Joe. You're not encouraging Joe. You're supposed to make him feel good. How can I make Joe feel good when he's got, you know, meth, when he's all methed out? His face is all sunken in. He's got the scabs and he just keeps picking away at his scabs. His teeth are all rotten. His eyes are all weird looking. You want me to comfort Joe by telling him things are going to be okay? Oh, God loves you. God loves you, Joe. He said, be kind, you know. Here, Joe, here's a loaf of bread. He said, no, Joe, I'm going to give you bread. I'm going to give you Jesus Christ, you know, fuller counsel than before. You need to repent of this garbage. You need to get rid of this garbage in your life. 
put it down. Just like Paul says here. He gives them a warning in verse 40. Beware therefore lest what has been spoken of you by the prophets come upon you. In the prophets come upon you. Behold you despisers marvel and perish. Can you imagine telling that to Joe? Joe, do you want to be a despiser? Do you want to marvel and perish? Perish is like straight up destruction. Burn in hell type of stuff. Some might hear, that's not exhortation. You're supposed to comfort. Yeah, I'm supposed to comfort. You're supposed to comfort. The Christian is supposed to comfort when it's warranted. You're also supposed to warn when it's warranted. Like Joe, who's a meth head. But no, people will hate you. People will get mad at you. People will leave you and abandon you. That's what I love so much. You read the Bible and you see like, you know, do you have any exhortation for us? And Paul, a little smile, turns to the side, a little smile at Barnabas. Smile looks at him, a little smile back. Barnabas, okay, Paul, do your thing. Handle business. Paul stands up. Why, yes, I do have a little exhortation. And he gives them a little dissertation from the Old Testament up until this point. Tells them about Jesus Christ. Tells them about the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem who did not know Jesus or nor the voice of the prophets in verse 27. And he's telling them, hey guys, don't be like the, 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 the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem. They made a grave mistake. Don't be like them. He addresses the resurrection. Very skillful orator here. If I might say so myself. It's very skillful. And what he's doing is like, wow, this guy is on point. Empowered by the Holy Spirit on a mission sent by the Holy Spirit. He gives them the good news, tells them about Jesus Christ. With a little smack talking there. They gather there to study the law and the prophets. And he's telling them, hey, the law, there's no justification in the law. A little smack talk. And then he gives them the warning. That's his exhortation. That's the biblical example of exhortation. Yes, exhortation is multifaceted. Multifaceted. There's the aspect of encouragement. The aspect of comfort. The aspect of imploring, which is to appeal, to urge, to plea, and to warn. To warn. Never forget that. People will hate you. Especially when you provide warning. People will hate you. Imagine Joe, who's the meth head. Hey, you hurt my feelings. You're not supposed to do that. I listened to this guy on TV. I went to the the big church down the street, and you know, he tells me everything's okay. I go to this other church, or I get my drug supply from him. And there's a big church here, big church in the city. And the pastor was a drug pusher, facing a prison sentence. I don't know if he was sentenced already or what happened with him. But he was a major drug pusher here in the Northwest. Trafficking. Big business these days. A lot of money in trafficking. Drugs, product, people. It's big business these days. Black market. 
That's what a so-called pastor was doing. It wasn't a pastor. It's a wolf. Wolf. You say, man, that's a little harsh. How could you say, you know, don't talk such way about God's anointed. Well, if it was God's anointed, that would have never happened. That would have never happened. Don't ever forget, you know, there's the aspect of feeding the sheep and protecting the sheep. Who are the co-pastors in this fellowship? Who are the elders in this fellowship? They were a bunch of yes-men. That's what they were. They were yes-men to a man. If you're going to be a yes-man, make sure it's to the Lord. And to the Lord only. Protect the sheep. The last days are going to be so brutal. Brutal. I mean, in the natural world, let the natural world testify of the brutality of warfare. When you see arms getting blown off, just go to the VA hospital. Look at all the guys who are without, you know, they don't have their legs anymore. Or, you know, before they go into combat, they got a wife, they got a kid, they, and they go out, deploy. They come back with no arms, no legs. The wife leaves them. The wife divorces them. And these guys, it's like they take all their meds, 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 and all of a sudden they blow their brains out. That's what I mean when I say the brutality of this battlefield, this spiritual battlefield. Somebody who commits suicide before making a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Families destroyed. And grandma t- crying in tears night and day, going crying herself, crying himself, a grandpa father, crying themselves to sleep at night because of their grandbaby who's an adult now, who's a crackhead. An alcoholic wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. You see, that's what I mean when I say the brutality of this battlefield. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And you know what the condition of the church is? Asleep. Because the only ones who can identify the Antichrist are the Christians. The Bible-believing Christians are the only ones who can identify the Antichrist. So you know what Satan's been doing? He's been hard at work and very, very effective in swaying truth by all kinds of various doctrines. Yeah, it's okay to take the mark of the beast. You'll still be saved. That's what a famous pastor is teaching. It's okay to take the mark of the beast. You'll be saved. It's, you'll still be a Christian. No big deal. A famous pastor today is teaching. And you know, it's like, wow, what, what a spell we've been placed under. As the church at large, what a spell we've been placed under. But where are the Elijahs in the last days? The days of Elijah, which are also the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, where are the Elijahs in the spirit of Elijah? With thick armor, big shields, two-edged swords, which is the word of God, and a helmet that's with dents and, you know, chinks and dents all around it. The shield with big old dents on it. 
because you've taken shots, you've taken blows, but you're still treading. You're still, you're still going forward in Christ. And I lift up your helmet, lift up your shield, and there's these huge tears streaming down your cheeks. The stains of years of tears on your cheeks. Praise be unto the Lord. Such is the heart of God, long-suffering. This is hardcore stuff, what we're learning here. And so look at verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. You see, very interesting. Notice the receptivity here. The Gentiles... You know, how these words were received by the Jews are different than how they were received by the Gentiles, you see? And you know what's so cool about this? I mean, there's a lot of things that are really cool about this. But the Lord gave, you know, like firsthand a little uh, inside scoop to a fellow by the name of Ananias when he was praying. When the Lord told Ananias, hey, Ananias, take this guy Saul in your home. Take him in. Ananias was like, oh, Lord, do you know who this guy is? He's persecuting the Christians. Lord, do you know who this guy is? And the Lord tells him, Ananias, it's okay. This is my chosen vessel. I'm going to use him to preach to the Gentiles. And that was several chapters ago. So Ananias had like an inside scoop of what the Lord was doing. You see, more beauty of intimacy I wonder if during these times, remember Ananias, he came and, you know, laid his hands on Paul and they prayed together and then he received his sight again. Uh, Paul received his sight and he was able to see again. And you know what's so cool? I wonder if in the, I don't know, but I wonder if Ananias in the background somewhere in his home, he's praying for Paul every night. He goes to bed at night and he says a little prayer for Paul. He wakes up in the morning, you know, says his normal prayers for his family, his neighborhood, those around him, his, you know, work, whatever he does. Just being thankful to the Lord, making his prayer and supplication known. But I wonder if he would also say a prayer for Paul. I'm almost certain that he did. Oh, Lord, I, you know, forgive me of my faith, Lord, because my lack of faith. Because I doubted you. When you asked me to take in Saul, I was afraid, Lord. And forgive me, Lord. And I pray for this guy, Paul. I don't know where he is, but I pray for him. I know you, you called him to, you know, preach to the Gentiles. But I pray for him, Lord. I pray that you open doors for him. I pray that wherever he is, whatever he utters, Lord, that you can give him boldness to say these things. And as he says these things, that, Lord, that you can bring forth fruit Believers, people who can receive you as their Lord and Savior. I wonder. I'm almost certain. I am 99.99999 times infinity. That's how certain I am that Ananias was praying. Among other people. But it's so cool. It's like, wow, you know, you see these things start to happen. Just like our study last week or a couple weeks ago. The church was praying and Peter was freed from prison, the prison break. In the church, the Lord had answered their prayers and they didn't even know it yet. You see, that's how the Lord works. It's so cool. 
Notice the receptivity to the Gentiles. Look at verse 43 now. In closing... That was a long sip of tea. Sorry about that. In verse 43. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. To abide is what that translates to, to abide in the grace of God. To say, you know what, guys? I know you go to synagogue, but it's not about the law anymore. It's not about the law Remember, verse 39, everyone who believes is justified in Jesus Christ from all things which, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Remember the Pharisees before Jesus Christ, they were like, we're hardcore. We believe in Moses. We follow Moses. Jesus Christ was like, you're blind, you guys. How can you believe the writings of Moses when Moses wrote about me? That's what he told them. Grace. Abide in the grace of God, not in the law. Righteousness doesn't come through the law. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So word spread. Word spread. And people wanted more. The whole city was there. Remember, there's no social media. You know, uh, Paul didn't make a little Facebook post. Hey, I'm going to be at this synagogue at this time. No, it was old school. You know what I love about it? The old school. It, 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 say there was social media at this time. You could say, oh, Paul went viral, you know. Paul said this in the synagogue and he goes viral. But you know what's so cool about the absence of social media that we have today? The power of the Holy Spirit. Doing all these things. Remember the ministry of the Holy Spirit that goes into the world to convict the world of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. And the Holy Spirit is moving. Here in chapter 13, the Holy Spirit is moving. You know, in chapter 12, chapter 11, chapter 10, the Holy Spirit was moving. And the Holy Spirit is still moving today. There's going to be a time when the Holy Spirit will be lifted. And it will very literally be hell on earth. Hell on earth. Because where will conviction come? Where will conviction come? Worldly conviction? I'm speaking about heavenly conviction. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. What happens when the Holy Spirit is lifted up? The only ones who will have the power of the Holy Spirit are five wise virgins. There will be, actually, there will be ten virgins. I'm speaking uh, from the parable, Matthew 25. Parabolically, I'm speaking. Ten virgins. They all had, all had oil for their lamps. Except five ran out, five had plenty. That's why you hear me say all the time, be very generous with the wine. Be very generous with the light. 
Be very generous with the seed. Be very generous with all things that the Lord has given you. With the exception of the oil. Be very, very, very selfish with the oil. That is for you. You say, what do you mean? We're supposed to be generous. Yeah, we're supposed to be generous. But when it comes to the oil, when it comes to the oil, that's special intimacy that you have with the Lord. The Lord gives you plenty of supply. Because there's going to come a time when the Holy Spirit is lifted up. But wise virgins will have plenty of oil for their lamps. That's the church of the last days. That's the bride in the last days. That the Lord will rescue. And so look what happens here. In verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Notice their hearts. What's the condition of their hearts? Instead of hearing the good news, hearing the warning, hearing a little smack too that Paul had to say. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, this guy is right. Notice the condition of their hearts. They were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they oppose the things spoken by Paul. There is always, 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 always opposition to the work of God, no matter what he's doing, no matter what generation he's doing it. There is always opposition. So you believe in Jesus Christ? You're abiding in Jesus Christ and he in you? And you're obeying his word? Don't be surprised when opposition comes against you in whatever form. Don't be surprised. Look at the opposition that came against Samuel when the elders, people who were supposed to be on his side, even his own sons weren't on his side. But the elders, they ganged up against him. And who did the Lord speak to? The Lord spoke to Samuel. And said, Samuel, don't fight these guys. Let them do what they want to do. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Let them do it. You see? These religious leaders here, they oppose the things spoken by Paul. In verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. The fulfillment of the calling. Paul called to the Gentiles to preach the good news to the Gentiles. And here is the fulfillment. Remember what the Lord revealed to Ananias several chapters ago? Ananias, don't be afraid. He's my vessel. I'm going to use him to preach to the Gentiles. Ananias had the inside scoop. And here you have the calling of God aligning with the feet and the hands of Paul. You see? That's what's so cool about the work of the Lord. What is your calling? That's not for me to say. I don't know. But what is your calling? 
You say, I don't know. Well, wait. Wait on the Lord. It will be revealed. So many times, I used to wonder, I used to ask people, how do you know you have a calling? I'd talk to pastors, elders, how do you know you have a calling? And all of them, 100% of them, this was their answer. They say, well, you take a step of faith. You do one thing, and if it burns out, you know, maybe it wasn't a calling. You go another direction, and if it fizzles out, maybe it wasn't a calling. You go another, another direction, things seem like they work out, maybe that's the calling. Nobody gave me a definitive answer. Nobody. Pastors, elders, ministry leaders, missionaries, nobody gave me. Ask, ask everybody all the time. I was like a little butterfly in certain circles. How do you know you have a calling? Nobody gave me an answer. But I'll give you an answer today. When God gives you a calling, all doubt goes away. All doubt. When God speaks, all doubt goes away. That's when you know. It's... If you open up your eyes, I don't know where you're at. You open up your eyes and look at your feet, okay? You look at your feet. More sure than the feet that you see is the calling of God. You take your hand and you touch your shoulder. More sure than feeling your shoulder is the calling of God. I say, you know, touch your shoulder. Are you sure you feel the shoulder? I found, I, 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 it sounds stupid in saying that. I say, touch your shoulder, you touch your shoulder. Are you sure that your shoulder, you sure? It's like a little tongue twister. Are you certain it's your shoulder? It's a dumb question because, you know, no duh, it's your shoulder. Well, more sure than that is the certainty of God's calling because all doubt goes away. It's so cool how the Lord works. You know what's so powerful about what he says in verse 46? He tells the people, he tells the Jews, the religious leaders, the people in the synagogue. He says in verse 46, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. You know what the Calvinist says? You know what the Reformist says? You know what the Presbyterian says? God predestined you to hell. Now that's hardcore Calvinism. I've talked to, I've had some, you know, chats with Calvinists before and Reformed theology people. I like to call it Reformed theory because that's all it is. It's a theory. They get mad at you when you say that. Oh, it's, you know, what you're saying, what you're purporting is only a theory. It's a mere theory. And they get mad. But, you know, I tend to get under people's skin sometimes. It's a mere theory. They say, oh, the, I'm reformist. I don't say that. God predestines people to hell. Well, you need to read the writings of John Calvin if you're going to be a Calvinist. 
You need to read the writings of John Calvin. John Calvin. You need to read the experiences of uh, what happened in Geneva and understand these things and see that the rock that you stand on is sand. You're telling me that God predestines people to hell? When here in verse 46, Paul tells them, you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. And the Calvinists will say, no, God predestined them to hell. They're not of the elect. Remember, in accordance with the law, he's speaking to the elect, the Jew. You see? That's why I say Reformed theology is really Reformed theory. Never, ever, ever forget that. It's, they rejected the word of God. Here in verse 46, Paul says, you reject it. You're judging yourselves unworthy. Do you remember in Luke 8, how the Bible, what the Bible says about the seed? In Luke 8, verse 11. In Luke 8, verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. It's to say, whoa, I thought, you know, it sounds a lot like it's kind of aligns with what Paul is saying. Paul says, you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy. But notice what happens to the seed inside of the heart. You receive the word with joy and have no, and these have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares, riches, riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Translates as endurance. With endurance. You see? Something happens when the word of God goes in, goes out of somebody's mouth. From the heart. It emanates from the heart. And the heart that is enshrined in the pages of scripture. Those are the best hearts. Because the outpouring of their heart, the word comes up their throats, their esophagus, out of their mouth, from their tongue, out of their mouth, and into these ear holes, and they go into the ear holes, and what happens? It's out of your, it's out of your control. Once the word comes out of your mouth, it's out of your control. It goes into ear holes, and then what happens? What happens in that person's heart? That's between them and God. What does Paul say in Acts 13, verse 46? Hey, you guys, you rejected it. And in so doing, you're judging yourself unworthy of everlasting life. He says, since that's the case, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us. 
I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. I love this word should because it translates should be. It translates as exist. Exist as in the as in a functionality and purpose. That's some hardcore stuff. He's saying that you exist for the purpose of salvation to the of bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. What's your purpose in life? As a Christian, as a believer, as a blood-bought soul what's your purpose in life wealth riches the cares of this world a world that's fading a world that despises you a world that hates you and it's going to get worse and worse and worse what's your purpose what's your calling You don't know your calling? I say, wait. Wait. And stand on the rock of salvation. Stand firmly on the rock of salvation. Don't slumber. As we study the Word of God, you know, we read these passages in Holy Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Fill your vats. You know, the Word, I mean, when I say fill your vats, like, let the oil pour. And fill your vats full of oil because the Holy Spirit is going to lift one day. And the world is going to get darker and darker and darker. No conviction of the Holy Spirit. Then the church really has to be wise. I mean, we have to be wise today, but wow, as it gets worse, we really have to be wise. Like straight up curfew type stuff. Like I'm not going outside past, you know, six o'clock kind of stuff. You know, wintertime, three o'clock. I mean, things that we have to certainly pray about and seek the Lord about. The Lord will guide, just like, you know, we've seen it so thus far in the book of Acts. But boy, I mean, when we vacationed in San Francisco one time, we have a friend there. He told us, you guys, don't be out at night. The city, it's a beautiful city, but there's ugliness at night. Don't be out at night. He said, set a curfew. And my wife and I, we had a blast. We had so much fun. But we set our curfew at 8 p.m. 8 p.m. So like most of the time we were indoors by like 7.30, 7 o'clock. We were indoors, but we'd get up early, go out, paint the town red, go to these restaurants, you know, visit, sightsee, go to the water, do all these things. But man, you know, by a certain time, boom, we were inside. You know, just like... like Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, it was the 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 people there, the the males, the homosexuals. They they wanted to have sex with the angels, and they were struck with blindness. And even in their blindness, they still wanted to have sex with the angels. See how dangerous it was. It requires wisdom. It requires. Oil for your lamp when their world will have no oil. Will you have oil? If you want oil, then now is the time to start storing oil. Now is the time. Store oil. 
Be selfish. Store oil for yourself. You can't store it for another. You can only store oil for yourself. If you choose to store oil. Because men's hearts will fail them. Men's hearts will betray them in the last days. Unless those days be shortened, even the elect, no flesh would be saved. Even the elect, that's what the Lord says. Even the elect. Do you know how hardcore that's going to be? Wild, wild days. You say, oh my goodness, I want oil for my lamp. I say, amen. Me too. The time to store oil is now for yourself. You can't store oil for a spouse. You can't store oil for a child. You can't store oil for a parent. You can't store oil for a friend. You must store oil for your lamp and your lamp alone. Personal. Personal. So look what happens here in verse 48 in closing. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. You see, the word of the Lord being glorified among the Gentiles. You see? Just like blindness fell on the Gentiles in Jerusalem, the same thing is happening in Antioch. But not without opportunity. The word went forth to everybody. But which fish were in the nets? The net was cast. And Paul Paul brings back the net. Which fish are in the net? The Gentiles. They were glad and glorified the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many here translates as whosoever. And this word appointed translates as arranged. This is one of the best phrases, the best verses, this latter part of this verse 48. One of the greatest verses that a Calvinist can use. To say, you see the. They're arranged, you know, the, the people who are appointed to eternal life, they're arranged into eternal life. Okay. But it's still whosoever. It's still whosoever. I give you that marathon example. You've heard me say this before, but I give you the marathon example. Say, we're at the starting line of a marathon, okay? And there's only 10 racers. Not a lot, but for easy math purposes, I say 10 racers, and we're at the starting point, and it's a 20-mile run. And so it's like, boom, the gun goes off, and you see all the 10 racers go. They just start booking it, and they disappear into the distance. They turn around the bend, and they disappear. And then they say, okay, come on, guys, get in my helicopter. And we get in my helicopter, and we fly up. We go up, you know, and fly across the ground. We look down. We can see them running. We keep flying. You see all the cars and everything. We get to the finish line, 20 miles away. We get to the finish line. We land. We get out. And we're waiting a while, you know, have a burger, get some sodas, you know. We're sitting there. And then all of a sudden, you see the first guy come across the thing. You see him come across the bend. 
and he's running. He's all sweaty. The first time we saw him, he was like all dry. And now we see him, he's all drenched. He's all wet and sweaty. And it's just like, you see his hair, it's just matted on his head because he's been sweating the whole time. And he makes it across the finish line. It's like, okay, remember that guy? That guy's got red socks on. Remember that guy. And then you wait a little bit, and then another guy comes running. You know, running, nice pace, but, you know, slower than the first guy. He's second place. It's like, okay, that guy's got blue socks on. Remember that guy. And then you see another guy, kind of chubby, but I don't know how he did it. His legs took him. You know, he ran like the wind. He's chubby, but he could run. So he comes around the corner, you know, and he's running, and he's sweating. He's the sweatiest of all of them, you know, and he's running. And he makes the thing, okay, cool. You know, that guy has uh, pink socks on. And that's it. It's like, where's everybody else? Then, you know, somebody comes, to, one of the officials comes to us. Well, you know, this runner, you know, fell down. This other runner, you know, was, uh, jumped out of the race, went to McDonald's. You know, this other runner was, you know, this one guy, he's still running, you know. And this other guy, and then all of a sudden you see somebody limping across the corner. He comes around the corner, he's limping. Okay, this guy made it. You know, he's got black socks on. So he got blue socks, red socks, pink socks, and black socks. That's just four, but for I'll just keep it at four. And then I say, okay, guys, I didn't tell you this before, but my helicopter is also a time machine. Okay, so let's get back inside. We load up, I hit some buttons, you know, ding, ding, boom, boom. And we go back in time. We fly up and we go back in time. We go back to the starting point. We land. We get out. And I say, okay, we're back in. The, we're at the finish line. You see these 10 guys? You see that guy with the, uh, I forgot the socks now. <laughs> the blue socks, the red socks, the pink socks, and whatever socks. Oh, the black socks. So four. You see those guys? Those guys are appointed to go to the finish line. You say, what do you mean appointed? Well, it's for everybody. The finish line is for everybody. Whosoever. It's for everybody. But these four people, they're arranged. They're going to hit the finish line. That's not to say that you or I or anybody had any doing in his choices. These four guys, their choices. Their feet, they put one foot in front of the other and they made it across the finish line. So you have to understand when we talk about the appointing, appointed to salvation, I'm going to say this quite a bit, you know, my, my helicopter, that's a time machine. So we go back in time and I say, okay, these four guys, they're appointed, they're arranged, they're going to make it across the finish line. But all 10 people, they all had the opportunity and the desire was for them all was to make it to the finish line, but not everybody made it to the finish line. It's like people talk about predestination, a predetermined destination. Well, you get in your car, you set up your GPS, and then, you know, you want to go to a burger joint. I'm getting hungry. You want to go to a burger joint. And it's like, okay, I want this burger joint, the best burger in town. And you get in your car and you start driving. Well, you know, the voice comes up, turn left, turn right, turn left, go straight, you turn, do this. You have to follow these instructions. You predetermined your destination. But you still have to follow the left and the right. So you can't just go anywhere and do your own thing and expect that you're predestined. You can't be predestined without obedience. You're 
predetermined destination is heaven. You're predestined to heaven, but you still have to obey. It's not without obedience. You still have to listen when the Holy Spirit says turn left, turn left. When the Holy Spirit says turn right, turn right. When the Holy Spirit says stop, stop. When the Holy Spirit says punch it, you punch it. We have to understand these concepts because we're going to learn deeper and deeper and deeper things about uh, 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 in Romans when Paul writes about predestination. Very heavy because there's this neo-Calvinist movement that's growing like wildfire in the church today. And then you got these people that are turned, you know, tossed to and fro by all kinds of doctrines. Calvinists, neo-Calvinists who want to commit suicide because they're, they're not the elect. They say, well, you know, oh, I, did, I, I fell in this area. I committed this sin, so I'm not the elect, so I'm just going to blow my brains out. Well, it's a lie from the pit of hell. This theory of reformed doctrine, which is just a theory, it doesn't hold water to the Holy Scriptures. So, verse 48, And as many, or whosoever, as had been appointed or arranged to eternal life, believed. Think of that marathon example in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. You see, offense. Offense. You see, there's a defensive posture and there's an offensive posture. But any time there's a work of the Lord, always, always, always expect opposition. Look at verse 50. In closing, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. So the political class and the prominent class, the influencers, they were stirred up by the Jews. It says in verse 50, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So Paul gets his first taste of persecution. First, Remember, he used to be a persecutor of the church, persecutor of Christians. Now he's on the receiving end of persecution. He gets a little taste. And now he realizes and sees by firsthand account the cost of following Jesus Christ. The cost. You know, there's something I have to say about this coronavirus culture that we're in currently. You know, the states have imposed their lockdowns. And, you know, after two weeks, you know, the, the, the governors have said, okay, we're state, our state is on lockdown, stay-at-home order. And after two weeks, people have started going crazy. They, they, they're starting to lose it. After a month, they're starting to lose it. After two months, they're starting to lose it. And I'm not trying to say like, hey, indefinitely do these things. But I do have to say this. If, 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 if it's financial issues, you know, that's one thing. It's, you know, some people have lost their jobs and they can't get their jobs back. But, you know, there's... I'm not trying to gloss over that aspect of things. You know, people are hurting. They have to put food on the table and it's, it's getting to a boiling point right now. But something happens in the heart of a soul, in the heart of a man, in the heart of a woman when we reach our boiling point. Number one... Some commentary about the matter. 
the home of a Christian. The home of a Christian. Could be single, could be married, could be a family with kids. But the home should be a sanctuary. But what are you seeing right now in Christian homes? You're seeing husbands that can't tolerate their wives. They can't stand their wives. So they make an excuse to go to work. Oh yeah, uh, I'm an essential business. I got to go to work. They make an excuse to get away from the wife because they can't stand her. You got wives who can't stand their kids, can't stand their husbands or their kids. Liz and I were watching this uh, this lady on the news. I forgot where it was, but she was like, hey, I got to go for a walk. I just walk for hours, two hours, three hours. Got to get my exercise in. But really, I say I'm going to get my exercise in, but really, I can't stand my kids. I can't stand my husband, my kids. And my wife and I, we looked at each other like, what in the world? Like, dang, that's sad. That is so sad. You know, it's such a trip, the world that we live in today. You know, husbands can't stand their wives, their kids. Wives can't stand their husbands or their kids. That's why you're going to see the divorce rate. It's already starting to climb. Because people use work as a little, like, uh, escape. You know, they, I got to escape my uh, my spouse, so I'm going to go to work. And parents talking about summer camps. We saw it today, the summer camps. They yeah, I use summer camp to, you know, send my kids to camp because I need time to unwind. It's like, well, you should have thought about that when, you, you know, you did your deal. You should have thought about these things. But the Christian home should be a sanctuary. I can't mandate that on anybody, but I can strongly implore and strongly urge. So when you walk in your door, you close your door, you exhale... And your home, it's your sanctuary. It's comfort. Comfort of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. The presence of your loved ones. And then maybe you can endure these, you know, these quarantine orders. These stay-at-home orders. Maybe it'll be easy to to deal with these quarantine orders. You say, oh man, why, why are you switching gears on us? We're, we're supposed to be studying the Bible. You're talking about the coronavirus. Well... There's this major hullabaloo going around about uh, obedience to government. You know, we have our rights, our constitutional rights. You can't do this to us, governor. You can't do this to us, government. And I find it interesting that the people who are purporting these things and are saying these things are, I shouldn't say all of them, but a portion of them are very welcoming towards government handouts. Very, very welcoming towards government handouts where the left hand is saying, here, give me my food stamps. The left hand is saying, give me my uh, 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 unemployment. Give me my food stamps. Give me my uh, free medical insurance. Give me all this stuff. But then the right hand is saying, no, you can't have this role in my life. Well, you already have the role in your life. If you rip my heart open, you rip my chest open, I should say. You'll see my heart beating. And it's red, white, and blue. I love this country. But when we take a position where we start to oppose government and fight government, remember, we are called to be obedient to government. You know, we're called to subjugate ourselves under government. And of course, we are obedient to the Word of God. 
But to, I shouldn't say obedient to government, obe- obedient to the word of God, but submit ourselves to government. Paul writes about it in Romans. You see passages like this in Romans and Titus. And people always say, oh, Paul exercised his rights. As a Roman citizen, he exercised his rights. It's true, he did. But let's put this in context a little bit. When Paul exercised his rights as a Roman citizen, yes, he's a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. It's from this point where we're at in chapter 13, it's about 10 to 15 years later, maybe 13. I mean, if I were to be like pinpoint with more accuracy, I would say about 13 years after this. But the good window, a nice healthy window is 10 to 15 years after this point in chapter 13. 10 to 15 years after, that's when he exercised his rights as a Roman citizen. And so he endured things from certain governing officials, subjugating himself under the rule of government. Now, I could say local government. When he appeals to Rome, when he appeals to Caesar, exercising his rights as a Roman citizen, it wasn't for the sake of freedom. He didn't exercise his rights as a Roman citizen in appealing to, to Caesar for the sake of freedom. Because when he did exercise those rights, he was imprisoned, which led to his beheading. When I say you rip open my chest, my heart beats red, white, and blue. I'm When we take a position of fighting government, number one, don't bite the hand that feeds you. So if you're like on the government dole and then you want certain freedoms, there's some hypocrisy there. If you're not on the government dole and you want certain freedoms, I'm all for that. I'm all for freedom as American citizens. But we have to protect our souls at the same time, protect our hearts, protect our minds, because if we're going to get into the aspect of like straight up fight government to the extent like 1775 kind of stuff, nobody's ready for that. To go to arms, I'm not advocating violence against government. But what's brewing brewing right now, it's it can lead easily to violence. I mean when the government says, hey, we're gonna take your kids so we, we can, you know, make sure that they're isolated. We're gonna take your kids. That's like straight up, hey, don't tread on me kind of stuff. We have to be wise. We have to be wise to the times. Wise as serpents and peaceful as doves. This act of subjugating self to government. It's an act of self-denial, but then at the same time, we need to seek the Lord. We need to seek God's face. Lord, what will you have us do? Individually, corporately as individual family units, and corporately as a church body. I think the church 
needs to take a back seat and say, Lord, what will you have us do? And seek the Lord and pray and wait on the Lord who will give us guidance. Now, if you're hard up on cash flow, it's to say like, wait a second, you know, like it's very hard times, very difficult times. And I want to be sensitive to those things. But when we get into the 70, 1775 kind of stuff, like straight up Culpepper Minuteman type of stuff, I understand it. I get it. I understand it. But do you know what happens inside of a soul, inside of a mind, to have a rifle in your hand, to squeeze a trigger, to feel the recoil, to look forward at the barrel of your rifle and see a human being fall to the ground and spit up blood and take his or her last breath. And people talk, they talk tough. Say, oh yeah, the government can't do this, we're going to go to arms. It's to say, hey, we need to be wise to the times. Allow the Holy Spirit inside of these temples. And I'm not ascribing to violence against government, but it can very easily reach that point. What is the role of a Christian in this, in this culture, in this environment? So many people are saying, yeah, we have our rights, we have our rights. Paul exercised his rights. Well, it was 10 to 15 years after major persecution. And when he used his rights, when he appealed to Caesar, exercising his rights as a Roman citizen, it, was, it, was, it, it led to his imprisonment and it also led to his beheading. Never, ever forget that. It's the opposite today. People want to exercise their rights. For the sake of freedom. Now I understand that what I'm saying is rubbing people the wrong way. I completely understand it. Me 20 years ago would have certain choice words for me today. But there's a kingdom of the Antichrist and a kingdom of heaven. A kingdom of the Antichrist and kingdom of Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not of this world. You say, man, that sounds like you, you want us to be slaughtered. No, I, I don't want that. I don't desire that. What I want us to do is be still and wait upon the Lord. Just like we see in the book of Acts. You see people praying. You see people fasting. There might be times where it's like, you know, we got to get creative with how we meet. Pray individually in our satellite locations. Or meet corporately like an underground church in secret somewhere and just pray as a church body. I don't know. But as we read scripture and we see these things, understand that as we progress in these chapters in the book of Acts, the cost of being a Christian is getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. Paul is getting a little taste of that here in chapter 13. In verse 50, he's getting a little, little taste of that. You and me today, we're getting a little taste of that. Oh, Christian churches, you can't meet anymore. 
no religious meetings anymore. I think it's interesting because I'm starting to see in the news of violence against Christians, violence against Jews. Very interesting. Look at what's happening in the synagogues in New York, the synagogues in Chicago, the synagogues in Israel. People being rabbis being arrested. Look at today, pastors being arrested. Now, I don't, doctrinally, I don't agree with some of these pastors, but just the fact that you're starting to see crosshairs on Jew and Christian. What does the Bible show us in the last days? Crosshairs on Jew and Christian. Very interesting. That's what I mean when I say we have to be awake, on guard, on alert. You see, it's not to say like, you know, we have to be wise. And yes, subjugate ourselves to governing authorities. Being wise as serpents and peaceful as doves. And just like the persecuted church who has to meet secretly. We might very soon, very quickly come to a point where we have to meet secretly. That's what I mean when I say like, let's pray. And seek the face of the Lord. Lord, what will you have us do? How will you have us navigate through these days? Through these times? Standing firmly on the rock of salvation and being fishermen, warriors. Engaging. Reaching the lost with the good news. And so look what happens here in verse 51. You know what's interesting too about Paul when he exercised his rights? He knew it. He knew that appealing to Caesar would lead to prison and or death. And he got exactly that. He exercised his rights and got prison and got death. So you hear people say, oh yeah, Paul exercised his rights, so I'm going to exercise my rights too. Well, what, what does that get you? Does that get you more of your will? These are hardcore questions. And I know there's... There, it might rub people the wrong way so much so that I'll lose people. Maybe even you. And if that's the case, be mad at me. Don't be mad at God. God loves you. Take it all out on me. Don't take it out on the Lord. He loves you. He wants you to carry your cross. He wants you to deny yourself. Remember, Jesus Christ carried his cross to his death. Paul exercised his rights as a Roman citizen to his death. People need to understand these things. They don't read the Bible. They want to exercise their rights for their will. But at what point will we say, Lord, not my will, thy will? People tell me all the time, you're a homewrecker, you're breaking up families. At first, I didn't like hearing that. I don't want to break up families. 
I don't want to be considered a homewrecker. But I do advocate for a different family. A family that's not of this world. And the family that I do advocate for, the cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by in the Holy Scriptures, all of them, 100% of them, tasted of the fruit of self-denial. All of them. That's the fruit that we eat from. It's holy. That's the cup that we drink from, which is holy. It's heavenly. And if I lose you, hate me. Don't hate the Lord. He loves you. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. This is kind of cool too. They, 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 they left town. Kind of interesting, you know. Like I, I see like Georgia and Texas, how they're opening things up. So we might have to relocate, you know what I'm saying? If you're thinking about uh, relocating. <laughs> Nevada, Texas. I don't know. We're going to have to research that. Oh, mobile, you know, like a tabernacle. <laughs> As the Spirit leads. <laughs> Verse 51. But they shook the dust off. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. So they headed east. They go east now. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is what's so powerful. In closing, officially in closing. You know, you, you see the church, you see Christians in the book of Acts. They're not on empty. They are filled with joy and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's it's so beautiful, the joy that we can have in the Lord. You know, I can't explain this, but I've been in certain situations where there was intense violence, life-threatening kind of violence. And the circle of guys that I was with, it, we had a blast. Like I, Like, it was... Because of them, it was so enjoyable. <laughs> Just the camaraderie. And I kind of get a sense that that's what the church is going to be like in the last days. Like we are going to be in the thick of things. The violence of like hardcore eternal battle. But because of the fellowship of the saints and because of the Holy Spirit, we're going to have such wild, wild joy. It's going to be so much so much pleasure in doing these things and fulfilling the, the will of the Lord, but then at the same time being filled with the Holy Spirit and the church in the book of Acts is not on empty. There are people today who say, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit, how he worked in the book of Acts, that was for 2,000 years ago. It's not for today. Such people have empty lamps. No oil for their lamps today. How can they have oil for the lamps when they say the oil was for 2,000 years ago? How can such people have oil in their lamps today when they restrict that oil, they reserve it for 2,000 years ago for another dispensation 
fools testify of such things. What do I say? No. Fill your vats. The oil was for 2,000 years ago. It's for today. There was no expiration date on the Holy Spirit. Fill your vats. Because the Holy Spirit will lift one day. And fearfully soon. I say fearfully, not for me. Fearfully for you. Because I want you to have oil. But I can't fill oil in your vat. You have to fill oil for your own vat. You can't fill it for a spouse. You can't fill it for a child. You can't fill it for a parent. You can't fill it for a friend. You have to fill it for yourself. And there's a steady flow of it today. But it's not going to last forever. Wisdom is required in the last days. Wisdom. Wisdom that emanates from Holy Scripture, guidance of the Holy Spirit. And God will speak. Where are the quotes? You know, you fall on your knees, you fall on your face before the Lord. And what? Nothing? I mean, I'm not trying to shame anybody, but, you know, if that's the case, wait on the Lord. But in a relationship with the Lord, you get closer with Him, intimacy with Him. You make your prayer and petition known before Him. And as surely as the Lord lives, He will answer. It might be immediate. Or you might have to wait. But it might be immediate. And just as we see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is guiding. The Holy Spirit is leading. So we're going to end our study here. And we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in chapter 14. Love you guys. Miss you guys. And uh, fight the good fight.